Today we conclude our series, The Transformational Church, working through Paul's letter to Titus and the community of Crete, the island of Crete. Paul brought the gospel to the island of Crete, as you can see on the map, circled in red. And isn't it awesome that us as Christians are Christians not because the gospel is good advice of how to live, not because the gospel is a set of rules, but because the gospel is good news. It's good news of something that was accomplished for us that we don't have to accomplish, that we can lean on something, someone. The gospel is good news, and this good news came to Crete, and this good news brings with it an incredible hope, as those of us that are Christians know. And it tends to transform us from the inside out. There's only one problem. It wasn't exactly doing that on the island of Crete in these house churches. In fact, the, Cre- the Cretians were becoming, or they were, too much like their culture. To be a Cretan was to be a liar, and that's something that was used way beyond the first century. They were liars, they were gluttons, they were violent. There was a lot going on. There were leadership issues in these churches. There there was negative influence away from the gospel, whether that was done intentionally or not. And the truth of the gospel, the core elements of the gospel, wasn't sticking, and the message of Jesus was being discredited. And so Paul sent Titus to Crete. And remember, just like them, as Christians, we are called to be separate from the world, to be different, to be set apart. But we're to be set apart for the sake of the world. And so the same gospel message that comes into our hearts, that sets us apart from the culture, sends us back into our culture for the transformation of our culture. Now, anybody in this room right now that's over the age of 35 knows what this, thank you, yes, I am too, well over 35, um, knows what this looks like, this next slide. Everybody knows what that means, and if you're under 35, you may not, because it was primarily a movement that started in the 90s and a little bit beyond. Actually, the grassroots part, part of this started in 1897 by a book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. And then, about a hundred years later, in Holland, Michigan, in a youth group, they kind of recoined this phrase, what would Jesus do? And it really caught on in Christian circles and other churches. Christian bookstores and stores started selling apparel, like you see bracelets. What would Jesus do? I am not up here to mock the what would Jesus do movement. However, I am here to suggest that there's something greater than what would Jesus do. And that is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do is actually greater than what would Jesus do. You see, imitation can be good. In fact, you could argue that we are called in certain ways to imitate Jesus. We have to be careful with that because we're not necessarily called to 
heal the sick, raise the dead, and calm the storm like Jesus did. Thank God for that, because we would all fail more miserably than we already do. So imitation can be good as long as we understand it, but Jesus didn't come primarily to be an ethical teacher. Jesus didn't come primarily to teach us how to live as if to say, if you follow my teachings and do a really, really good job, eventually you will find your way to God. Jesus didn't come as a prophet to say, follow me and I will show you the way to God. Jesus came to say, I am God and I've come to find you. See, there's a big difference. Every other religion says, I'll show you the way to God. I'll show you the way to nirvana. I'll show you the way to enlightenment. If you can just follow that path, then maybe eventually you can get there. And Jesus says, no, I'm God, and I'm, I've come to search for, to seek the lost, to find you where you are, even in the midst of your rebellion. I have come to find you, to offer you forgiveness. You see, too much what would Jesus do if we're not careful without the what did Jesus do can be suffocating. It can be this, this set of rules and expectations that I follow. And of course, none of us are Jesus, and so we fail over and over. And so again, Jesus came primarily as a substitute, as our substitute. And if we can meditate on that, if we can learn the art of, like we did in the reading in John 15 and the singing, draw me close, and abiding in Jesus. If we can understand what it means, yes, to live for Jesus, but before that, and even more importantly, to operate from Jesus, to develop a closeness with Jesus. That's where holistic transformation happens. That's where inside-out change happens. That's where true power comes from. The power to forgive people that have hurt us. The power to be patient with people. The power to empathize with people. To see people the way Jesus does. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've touched on this at some point in your journey like I have. And you start to realize, although most of us ask Jesus for stuff, for a lot of stuff, and I don't mean stuff necessarily like an Xbox, I'm talking about protection from and healing from diseases, things that he wants us to ask him about. We spend a lot of time doing that, but one thing that we realize as, as we've been Christians for a while is it's, it's not the absence of a problem, it's the presence of Jesus. It's not so much the absence of a problem. It's good to pray against those things, but you start to learn that there's something greater, and it's, it's the presence of Jesus that comes in in the midst of our storm and stills and quiets our hearts. And so we're finishing up Titus this morning. Pastor Nate left off with verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 8 says this, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And you might ask, what are these things? These things are the things that we have been talking about, that we've been pointing out in Paul's letter to Titus. These paradoxical things, as Nate talked about last week, how to subject to rulers who are harsh and not even Christians, how not to slander anyone, how to be peaceable with everyone and considerate and gentle and self-controlled and to have integrity and to be careful about our speech and to be salt and light as Christians in a 
decaying and dark world. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved as Christians for good works, to put, to put Jesus' love and character on display. If we back up a few verses before that, we get the essence of the gospel message in verses 4 and part of 5, and it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We've been talking about this incredible gift of grace. It's something that we can't earn. It's something that we don't deserve. And there are two extreme responses to God's free gift. We can be self-righteous and say, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm better than so-and-so and so-and-so. And And then we can go over here and go, I really don't deserve God's grace. I can't even accept God's grace and forgiveness. Do you know who I am and what I've done? And notice in both cases, we elevate ourselves above God and his wonderful gift in and through Jesus Christ. Even over here, when we shame ourselves and say things like, well, I could never forgive myself. You know what my short answer to that is? Don't worry about forgiving yourself. Accept and receive Jesus' forgiveness for you. Don't worry about it. Don't elevate yourself above God and his character and this incredible act of grace. God saved us not because we're good, but because He's good. The gospel protects us on both ends because it says we were so bad that God had to come and die, but we were so loved that God was happy to come and do it. Grace, it sounds nice, but it's also kind of scandalous and it wrecks us. And I think it does that by nature because it's not something that we can perform or live up to. It's not something that we can go get for ourselves. All we need is need. But the problem with that is we hate asking others for help. Also, this grace isn't just for us. It's for them. It's for our own worst enemies. And it wrecks us that way. And so the question that we're going to be asking this morning is, as we understand this incredible love of Jesus, what is required? What does Jesus' incredible love require of us? Not in order to be saved, but because we've received this free gift and we already are saved. What does it require of us? Because I think it requires a lot. We were redeemed with the blood of Jesus. We were redeemed at a high cost of God's life. We have moved from slavery to freedom. And if we understand that, then we we become, in a way, ambassadors of who Jesus is, and what he did for us. We, as Paul says, we present ourselves as conquered by Jesus to put his love on display. And you might say, Ben, what are you talking about? You said we, we we were bought from slavery into freedom, and now we're presenting ourselves as conquered and enslaved again? Yep. Yep, because someone or something is going to enslave you. The question is who or what. And Jesus is the one that if he enslaves us, that's when we're actually free. That's what true freedom is, not to be, not to be whatever I want and do whatever I want, but to be, to be who I was created to be. And that happens when we follow Jesus. We get this new power, but it's still hard. It's hard to know what the loving thing is to do in certain situations, and it's hard to carry it out. I got this from Andy Stanley's Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. 
And so I didn't come up with this, but it fits the message, so we're just going to keep coming back to it. And here it is. It's not going to be on the screen for you. When unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. When unsure of what to say or do, ask what Jesus' love requires of you. So let's start by looking at some things that most of us would agree are not really loving or probably not loving. Take a look at this with me. People-pleasing, codependency, not having boundaries, enabling, taking abuse, workaholism. Somebody goes, I love my job. Yeah, you might. You also need to have your job, right? It's, there's a difference maybe. Agreeing with someone just to be accepted. I think most of us would agree that these things probably aren't loving. They could be well-intended, but probably not loving. We might disagree. You might say, Ben, you're doing the people-pleasing thing again. And I might go, uh-uh, right? We could argue about that, but we probably agree that when those things are happening, these probably aren't loving. And this is the point. It's hard. It's hard to know in certain circumstances what the most loving thing is to do. And it's hard to carry it out. And yet I believe that's what Jesus, that's what Paul is calling us to. And so let's look at our section this morning. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. And the highlighted parts in orange is what we're going to focus on as we go. And so take a look with me at the orange section. But... Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So keep the orange in your mind here as we're talking through this because this is about people that argue with other people to prove themselves to be right. This has nothing to do with going on a genuine search for truth. This is about arguing to prove I'm right. This is about declaring myself and trying to make myself self-righteous as opposed to worshiping the one, Jesus, who is righteous. When you look at this word genealogies, this isn't about the fact that it's sinful if you go on Ancestry.com. But there was something going on in this first century where people were taking their family of origin maybe and trying to connect it to these ancient figures like Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, there was this, this symbolism, and then there was this one-upping each other in these Cretan Christian churches. Compare that and contrast that to Jesus and his lineage and his ancestry that Matthew plays out and shows us his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus, we see, came from, among other things, poor people, non-Jews, and prostitutes. That's Jesus' lineage, right? That's his human origin or his genealogy. There's always been a debate about who's right, who has access to the truth. Put Jesus on the scene in John chapter 4 when he's talking with the Samaritan woman. The Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. And there's this argument about which mountain is the true place of worship. Who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? And Jesus, being a Jew, of course, ultimately sides with the Jews. But he says, you're missing the point. Because I am ushering in a time that's coming and is now here where followers of 
me are no, no longer going to worship primarily on mountains. It's not going to be about mountains. They're going to worship me or God in spirit and in truth. You see, with Jesus, it's always better. It's always so much better. And yet, I think these Christians, I think us sometimes, what they were trying to do is they were just trying to fill in the gaps versus looking at what God had revealed to them practically. And I think, again, we do some of the same things. If we're not careful, we get caught up in end times speculations and Bible codes and cracking those codes. And ironically, it has nothing to do with actually reading the Bible. We get caught up in things like astrology and conspiracy theories. And I've had people tell me, Ben, it's not a conspiracy if it's true. Okay, that's not the point. The point is getting caught up in these conspiracies and wrapping myself all up in it and living like it's the most important thing. And if, that's, if we're not careful, that's what can happen. Stay on this section with me for a minute because this is about a spirit of rivalry and ego. And as you see the word quarrel, if it means anything to you, it's where we get the word machete from. So this is about, this is about fighting. This is about a spirit of rivalry. And then you see something was happening about the law what we know as the Old Testament. And so there was some kind of struggle there, right? They were, these Jewish Christians perhaps were saying, it's Jesus plus. Jesus, yes, plus keeping the Sabbath, plus keeping the, the Jewish diet, plus ceremonies, plus circumcision, getting further and further away from the core tenets of the gospel. Think about Jesus when he was on earth. There's this beautiful simplicity to Jesus, right? Because he goes, yeah, the whole law can be summed up. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. 600 and however many, 13 laws or whatever, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor and, as yourself. There's this beautiful simplicity. It doesn't mean that it's easy, by the way. Because Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, the Jewish and Samaritan hostilities, and how the Good Samaritan rescued this Jewish person from death in a ditch, and how we needed to love our neighbor in the same way. And yet there's this beautiful simplicity. Think about the early church, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. One of the things the earliest Christian leaders decided was, we shouldn't make it hard for Gentiles to come to Jesus. Whoa, what a funky concept. <laughs> what if more churches were known for, and I'm, I'm proud to say, I think Sparta Baptist is. We don't want to make it hard for people to come to Jesus. We want to make it as easily accessible as possible for people to be captivated by the love and beauty of Jesus. Amen? In fact, let's just major on the majors, and let's say, you can read this if you want in Acts chapter 15 later, but... Um, tell them not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, not to eat certain animal kind of blood, and then to avoid sexual immorality. And let's just kind of go with that. You see, the bigger your circle is, the more room, hopefully, there is for disagreement. In fact, Dan Morick has talked about this in, in other messages where our circles of like where, where we need to die on our hills actually need to be smaller, right? There should, there should only be a few things where it's like, I can't change these things and I have to be willing to die for this, to be, to be injured for this. I can't change my views. But the age of the earth isn't one of them. 
right? And so we have to be careful with what we're actually majoring on. And the question for me and for you, for all of us as Christians, is what are you known for? What are you known for? Are you known for majoring on the majors? Are you known for continually coming, continually coming back to saved by the grace of Jesus, transformed by the person and the love of Jesus, by the beauty of the gospel, by Jesus loves you. I don't care who you are, where you're from. Yes, that's sounding like a Backstreet Boys song. As long as you love me, right? But that's, it's no less true. Are we known for that? Are we known for getting caught up in arguments online or in person about things that don't even really matter in the big picture that much? In fact, stay with me in this section in orange because Paul says, even if it's not overtly sinful, it's worthless. If you're not careful, it's not wrong to have an opinion or to read something or to discuss about the age of the earth, but we have to be careful as Christians that we major on the majors, because if we don't, we're on a dangerous path of being rendered worthless and discrediting the gospel. So we come back to this, and again, this is not on the screen for you, but I want this to sink into your minds. When unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. But the good news here this morning is I'm not here to talk about this abstract love, right? I'm not here to say, ask what the love and the energy of the universe requires of you. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about love personified. Love in the flesh. Think with me about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Do you know how rich and deep the word word is? So rich and deep that I don't have a lot of time to really go into it this morning. However, I will say this for the Jews, it was about God's activity and his saving power and his spoken word that could do anything. It could create, it could sustain, it could work miracles, whatever God wanted it to do. But it was about the creator of the entire universe for Greeks, it was about this impersonal force that gives order to the universe. And John says, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the force. God is personal. God is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus showcases. He is God. Jesus was the creator of the universe. Somehow, in some way, this miraculous thing happened where God in the flesh came and he dwelled on the earth that he created. The author of all of the world, of everything, wrote himself into his own story. It's the ultimate mic drop when John says, this is Jesus. It's Love personified. Let's look at the second highlighted section here as we get into our, into our section. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. That seems, it seems kind of harsh. Understand that there was church conflict back then. If, we, if you experience church conflict now, there was church conflict then. In fact, the reason that we have so much of the New Testament is because believers didn't live like it very well. So we're, we're happy to have what we have, right? But it's come at a cost because believers too often don't get it, what we're, what we're doing. And there was division then, just as there is in churches now. And it's, it's not good. A divisive person, that's, a, that's strong language. It's where we get the word 
heresy from. So this isn't about like, well, Pastor Ben's talking about me because I come to church late. I come at like 9.35 most mornings, and so I'm a divisive person. No, this was way, way, way deeper than that. This is a person that's heretical, that's choosing to go their own way. And Paul says, in these cases, loving people is hard, but I want you to warn them. The word for warn means to put something in their mind, to course correct them, hopefully, to remind them and to influence them on the level of their will. And to come alongside this and do it gently but firmly and to do it twice. And if they still aren't getting it, he says in this section, have nothing to do with them. And again, that seems extreme and harsh. But think with me for a minute. Think about other places Paul talks about this in the New Testament where he says, have nothing to do with them or treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Every time in context, except it's not spelled out in this one, every other time there's a bigger picture in mind where where Paul is saying, we may need to separate from them now so that bad stuff doesn't happen to them later. It's actually the most loving thing to do for the body of believers and for the divisive people in hopes that they will come to their senses, they will repent, and then they will be restored. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, explode in anger at divisive people. Fight fire with fire. Burn them at the stake. Paul doesn't say any of that. I think Paul is following a model from Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about this a little bit. But here's the point. It's not always easy to know what the most loving thing to do is. Love takes different shapes, right? Depending on the kinds of relationships that we have. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. There are some of you, even sitting here right now, that have or are experiencing bullying. What do you do with that? What does love look like in that kind of situation with people that are treating you that way? Some of you have adult children that are making terrible choices. What does it look like as a parent to love them well? Some of you are experiencing or have experienced verbal abuse in your marriages. What does it look like to love your spouse well when you are on the other end of that kind of abuse? Some of you know friends that are into drugs and it's really, really dangerous. What does it look like to, to love a friend or an acquaintance or a coworker that's dealing with something like that? What about just a really difficult person to work with and you work shoulder to shoulder with them? You see them every day you come in and work. What does it look like to love somebody well that way? It's hard to know how to do the most loving thing and to carry it out. But again, what are we saying? When you and I are unsure of what to say or do, ask what love, what Jesus' love requires of you. About 10 years ago, my wife, Joe, walked in on Nate and I having an argument. Not going to give details away. I do remember what it's about. It's amazing because we worked together like 23 years, so you'd think it would be all like a blur, but I remember what this was about. And it was, it was, it was heated, and then Joe and I got in the car, and Joe said, do you guys talk to each other like that often? <laughs> and I said, I mean, sometimes. But what was actually happening and what I shared with Joe was that was Nate and I loving each other. That was Nate and I loving each other, having a difficult but necessary conversation. In that moment, Pastor Nate was loving me. He was saying 
hard stuff to me, but he was saying it in love. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do, the most loving thing to do. Sometimes it's hard to carry it out, but I believe in this moment, and I believe in a lot of moments that Pastor Nate's posture is. What's the most loving thing to do? What does Jesus' love require of me? That's what was happening, even though it may not have looked like it in the moment. In Scripture, it's most loving to offer someone comfort and challenge. In Scripture, it's most loving to offer somebody comfort and challenge. Not one or the other, but both. We get the word parakaleo, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us, loves us as is, enters into this broken body and mind, enters in, but then doesn't leave us, doesn't leave me where I am, right? The, the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, if you want to say it that way, it's about coming alongside believer to believer and offering comfort, but also offering challenge. One of the contexts is in Hebrews 3, and Paul said, if you don't want to end up like the rebellious Israelites that were left for dead in the desert, you need to be mindful of this. You need to receive not just God's comfort, but his challenge and his warning so that you can avoid being hardened by sin and sin overtaking you. It's a warning, but it's done so in love. Last part of our, this, this first section here. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. They are twisted, perverted. It's a present tense, hard heart issue. There's no excuse here. They're missing God's mark. They're not just divisive, but they're not teachable. And so people, other believers are coming to them and they're not listening. So it's one thing to be divisive. It's another thing to, to, to receive this challenge and refuse to listen. This person, let's say, or this group of people has decided we're going to go our own way. So there's no excuse, Paul's saying, in this moment. Let's say it this way. There's a difference between needing to divide or separate and loving to divide and separate. Some churches split and separate over issues that should not be core issues, and yet there is a need, potentially, whether you're talking about relationships in a church setting, church leadership, or person to person, there is a need at times to be separate. But there's a difference between somebody who doesn't care, who's starting fights, who's antagonistic, who's not teachable, and another person whose heart is breaking, because at their heart, they have received Jesus' love and his forgiveness and his grace, and they want to pass that on to others. And when relationships don't work out the way that they want, they're heartbroken, and they grieve it. And yet, there is a need sometimes to separate from someone. I could give you a lot of examples. I'll just give you one. I had a client about seven or eight years ago, and she was being verbally abused by her husband. And she was a believer, and so she thought that the best thing to do is to stay and to take it over and over and over and over again. And I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm not frustrated with her on that. That, that. that makes sense to me. We decided after about three to six months that that wasn't the most loving thing to do. 
that even though it was really hard, that she should actually step away, step back from him and the, and the marriage, at least for a time, because it wasn't the most loving thing to do for her marriage, for herself, and even for him, for him to be allowed to continue to treat her that way. So she stepped away, she left her home, she went to live with loved ones, and then that was the thing that got the husband's attention. He repented, and they're good now. It's not always easy to know what the most loving thing is to do, let alone do it. You think about the movie The Patriot and Mel Gibson's character. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't. And then the fight's taken to his front porch, and then his son is shot in front of him, and now he's like, okay, it's on now. Because I need to. I have no choice. You've left me no choice but to fight, but I'm, I'm broken about it. How badly do we want to fight to protect unity in the name of Jesus? For the name of Jesus, how badly do we, do we love the other person even if they're divisive, even if they've hurt us? How much does our heart break at the, at the fracturing of the relationship? How much deep down do we want to be peacemakers and not just peacekeepers? How much do we want to protect and exalt Jesus' name? And so again, when unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. Jesus' love. Last section that we're going to look at today, verses 12 through 15. Look at the orange, please. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. You know one of the markers of being a Christian is to actually be productive? Christianity is not anti-productivity. It's to, to be known as being consistent and productive. And Paul gets really personal here if you read, if you read later the rest of this section. It's about people that, are, that he cares about, that he's in ministry with, that are going to carry the letter for him to Titus, that are going to relieve Titus, and then Titus is going to join Paul somewhere else. Paul talks about meeting urgent needs. And again, back to the theme. We want to be a people as Christians that major on the majors. What's one way that these, these Cretan Christians were going to major on the majors? They were going to take all the names that Paul mentioned and they were going to make sure that these people were well cared for. That all of their needs were met. Whatever they needed, they were going to give to them. That's one of the ways they were going to major on the majors. You see, good works are crucial. We just, as Christians, we don't do them in order to be made right with God. We do them because in Jesus we already have been made right with God. There's a part in The Chosen. I love The Chosen. And there's, a, there's an ep part in the episode where Jesus and a religious leader are talking. And he, Jesus says to the religious leader, you're losing something. <laughs> you're losing persuasion, right? You're losing something and it's wrecking you. He doesn't say it exactly that way. And Jesus goes, me too. And the religious leader goes, what are you losing? You're so popular and pretty and smart. No, he doesn't say that. But he goes, what are you losing? And Jesus goes, time. I'm losing time. Time is short. I hope that lands with you. Our time is short here. It's even more important to major on the majors. Last part of our section Grace be with you all. And so Paul starts it out as saying, grace be to 
Titus, and now he's saying to all the believers that are going to read this and hear this, grace be to you all. It's for everyone. Again, we have been rescued by God's grace. We are transformed by God's grace. And then we take that and we put that on display for other people. I'm not who I used to be because of Jesus. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who I will be because of Jesus. You see, Jesus did the most loving thing by offering us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Jesus did the most loving thing. I know who I'm talking to. I know there are a lot of things that we ask of God, that we ask of Jesus, that he doesn't do. There are a lot of things that we think are really important, and I'm telling you they are important. If they're important to you, they're important to Jesus, and they're things that he hasn't done. There are things that he's allowed in our lives. There are things that he hasn't taken away. I'm just here to lovingly and tenderly tell you that Jesus did the most loving thing. He did the most loving thing when he was on earth. He completed the mission. He did the most important thing by far by offering us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Let this sink in for just a minute. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. Just, just try to capture the heart of our God for a minute. God was reconciling the world, world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I keep repeating the same stuff, Ben, over and over and over. What's the heart of our God on this? He doesn't want to count your sins against you. He takes that so seriously that he went to the cross. He takes that so seriously that in two verses later, Paul says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that somehow, someway, Jesus traded places with us. He took everything that we deserve so that we can have everything he deserves because he loves us that much, because he was desperate to not count our sins against us. Look at how the early Christians responded to this. I, I showed this when Nate and I did our team preach. Get this next slide. The earliest Christians were both offensive and attractive because they were uniquely multi-ethnic, refused to worship other gods, forbade abortion and infant exposure, were a sexual counterculture, were generous with their money, believed in forgiveness and non-retaliation, risked their lives to care for the sick, and invited others into a love relationship with the creator God through no human effort. That was the earliest Christian's response. When unsure of what to say or do, ask what Jesus' love requires of you, not in order to be saved, but because you already have been by Jesus. And so the closing question is, before we sing, what does Jesus' love, if you've received it, what does it require of you and me? I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to pray, but I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, let this wash over you. Let me just give you a few examples and maybe find yourself somewhere in there. What, is Je what does Jesus' love require of me? What would it look like if, as a Christian, I became a better listener? What would it look like as a Christian if I stopped arguing for my position? What if I dropped certain conspiracies, at least the intensity of which I hold them? What if I lovingly set a boundary with somebody who is antagonistic or hurtful for the sake of them, for the sake of, for the sake of Jesus' name? What if I became more generous with my stuff? What if, I, what if I said I was sorry more? What if I forgave somebody that 
finally that has hurt me? What if I prayed to Jesus, Lord, help me see them like you see them? What if I asked questions before I posted or before I spoke? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? Is it true? What if I offered others intentionally the hope of the gospel that Jesus came as our substitute, he's with us, he won't waste pain, and he won't leave us in our pain. You see, Jesus' love fills in the gaps. So now open your eyes, bring your heads back forward, and let's stand and sing about this powerful, resurrecting Jesus. Jesus.